Welcome to Tune In YRDSB, inspiring learning through storytelling. Hi, and welcome to Tune In YRDSB. Thank you for tuning in today to join our conversation about supporting 2SLGBTQI plus students in our schools and communities. Uh, just a quick note that today we will be discussing some important topics or themes that may be difficult for some listeners, such as mental health and suicide, so please take care while listening. My name is Max Denley, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a school social worker with the community care team here at the YRDSB. And my name is Missy Mei Ng, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm also a school social worker with the community care team. Our community care team supports students of uh, identity-specific communities who may be facing barriers to accessing mental health care in our systems and communities. We do this by providing direct support as well as some system support and uh, consultation services, um, professional development and learning for our colleagues uh, within the board and connections with the community as well. So we're really excited to be here today and get to share some of what we've learned from our amazing students and some ways that we hope that everybody can continue to support them as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Max. I think um, I'll start off. You use the um, the acronym 2SLGBTQI plus students. So I'll walk through that first if it sounds like new like collection of letters for folks. Um, the 2S stands for two-spirit, L stands for lesbian, G stands for gay, B stands for bisexual, T stands for transgender or trans, Q stands for queer or questioning, and I stands for intersex. And we throw in a plus there because uh, there's always other terms that are maybe a part of the community that are evolving or not included in that. So anyone else who is a part of that kind of exploring and expanding ideas around uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. So I want to just catch people up on what that all means. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, the way they, they've talked or thought about these identities uh, have shifted over time. I know um, I'll, I'll date myself a little bit here, but when I was in high school, um, people were talking about these identities in a way that was thinking about like, hey, you know, I always felt different and then I found this word and then it made sense to me and now I'll just live the rest of my life that way. And I think it's a little bit different the way that our youth are, are um, understanding it and it's a little bit more expansive. So I think the point of it is to really think about how um, people are always on a journey and the journey is the most important thing. It's not necessarily about the end goal. It's about supporting our students where they are. It's about challenging the ideas that there are only two different kinds of identities in different categories and having more expansive ideas around who we are and having the freedom to be who you are. So I wanted to just kind of throw out some kind of 101 style things, some things that maybe are some more assumptions that people are living with that we can kind of challenge and expand on. So when we're thinking about these kinds of identities, I think it's important to think about um, identities that we all have. So we all have some kind of assigned sex at birth. We all have some kind of gender identity. We all have some kind of sexual orientation. We all have some kind of gender expression as just a kind of like 101 understanding. So some things that are important to know is that when we're looking at um, people's bodies and um, thinking about sex and sex they're assigned at birth, we oftentimes in our culture think about it as a binary, as either male or female. But when we look at science and we look at how people's bodies actually are, we're actually way more complex than that. So there's a term that some people might know that's called intersex that talks about how we can um, sometimes 
have um, identities and bodies that are beyond that, um, that kind of idea of just two. And it's actually more common than people think of. Um, so it's as common as someone having red hair. So that is a really important thing to understand. And when we're thinking about um, our bodies versus our gender identities, gender identities are something that's kind of something you understand in between your ears. It's totally different than your bodies. Um, and this is why we're talking so much, for example, about trans folks is because people are starting to understand that um, these are different. So those things don't necessarily align for everybody. And also the way that we express our gender can be cultural, can be over time, um, has changed in our communities, um, is not necessarily linked to our gender identity. So, you know, you should be able to wear the clothes that you want to wear that feel right for you, do the activities that you want to do, different kinds of things that our culture is oftentimes assigned to genders um, can be all different. So we want everybody to just show up as who they are and um, express themselves who they are and um, play and explore those kinds of things and get the support they need um, wherever they are on that. Well, and I think sometimes when we talk about these things, we immediately think only of trans people, people who identify differently than what they were assigned at birth. But like you said, everybody has some kind of relationship to these concepts, and that includes cisgender people, you know, people who do identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. Um, we all have different ways of expressing our gender or our identity. Um, so these aren't concepts that are, you know, just for the trans community. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Max. Um, is there anything else that you think would just be really important for people to know just about these kinds of identities before we go on to our next topic? No, I just encourage people to, you know, c continue to have an open mind. Some of these things might seem new or different or might challenge what we already know or think we know about gender and identity. Um, but that's okay. It's okay to expand beyond this a little bit. When we're talking about, you know, Missy, you were mentioning the journey being the point and not necessarily the end point. Sometimes people feel like even when they come out or share a new identity that um, resonates with them, they're moving from being put in one box to another box. And we want to move away from that. We don't want people to feel like they always have to be boxed in. These ideas are really expansive and there can be room for that. So yeah, let's build a little bit more on just some of those terms we were describing. I know some of them might be new to people. I know a common thing I hear is like, there's too many labels these days. I can't keep up with everything. What do all these different words mean? Um, and you know, we're not gonna sit here and read definitions and attempt to uh, describe every gender sexuality label that exists, but we do wanna go over a couple of them that we do hear a lot and people may be less familiar with. And then just talk about labels as an idea as well and you know, why those might be important or might not be important to some people. So two of the terms that um, we're often kind of defining or redefining or talking about are queer and two-spirit. Missy, do you want to share a little bit about some of those terms? Sure. Um, queer is a really interesting term because um, it's not one that everybody is super down with. So um, before people start using it themselves, I, I actually, when I'm working with youth, I check to see if it's a word they're okay with. But it's a really good kind of catch-all word. Um, and it's a word that's been reclaimed uh, from having a negative history. So that can feel empowering for some people. Queer basically means anyone who's not straight or cisgender or some kind of co like connection of those two things. Um, so it's a catch-all instead of running through a whole like 2SLGBTQI plus um, kind of a thing. But there's people who don't identify with that word and may even find it insulting, right? Yeah. Like, 
So how do we navigate that when some people are claiming it as their identity and others are, you know, really bothered by it? Yeah, that's a great one. I think it's a tricky one because if you're a part of the community, it gives you a little bit more of some insider um, knowledge around when to kind of be able feel comfortable using it and when not. I usually um, let teachers know that 2SLGBTQI+, or other kind of like combinations of those letters, is probably the best to use in the classroom. And when you're talking to someone one-on-one and you have a relationship with them, and you kind of have an understanding or you have time to ask if, if the word queer is okay for them, um, that's how I usually suggest people use those. What do you think, Max? Yeah, I think like most labels or terms, like I'm not going to use it for someone until I've heard them use it for themselves and share that they're comfortable with that. Um, Definitely not going to make an assumption that that fits for somebody. Great. Max, can you walk us through an understanding of two-spirit? Yeah, so the the term two-spirit is an identity that is uh, unique to folks who are Indigenous. Um, it's not something that non-Indigenous people can claim or identify with. Um, and it's also, you know, we've got to recognize it's, it's an English word and it's uh, one word for so many different types of diverse identities um, that have existed long before colonization and, um, you know, that kind of... Uh, happening and and world, I guess. So I'm going to read a definition um, from a two-spirit person. So they say there's no simple definition, but generally two-spirit is a person who identifies as Indigenous and extends to describe their gender, sexual, or spiritual identity. Two-spirit has become an umbrella term that encompasses same gender or same sex attraction, but also a wide variety of gender variants. To me, being two-spirit is more about your gender identity and places emphasis on your gender role and contributions to your community. Often there is cultural and spiritual aspect to it. It's not just about sexuality. So that definition comes from uh, Kylie May, who is a Haudenosaunee Mohawk and Cayuga storyteller. What do you think people should really know about um, all these different labels and pronouns that people are using for themselves? I think the big point is that you don't actually have to know them all. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have them all memorized. Um, I'm constantly learning new things from the students we work with, and that's okay. You know, it, it's more important to understand what it means to the person in front of you. Um, you know, hey, that word is, is newer for me. Can you tell me what it means to you? Rather than feeling like we need to memorize or know everything, um, it's okay to learn new things. Um, it's also okay if people don't use labels or prefer not to identify with different things. Um, for some people, labels can be really empowering, right? And it's like a connection to a community and, oh, there's other people like me. If this person uses this word and I use this word, that means we're alike in some way, I'm not alone, and that can feel really good. Um, but for some people, labels are just another way that limit them and they prefer not to use them because you know they just don't need those words to describe themselves. Uh, and I don't think there's a right or wrong way to handle that. So again, we're just being open and trusting the people in front of us to know themselves best. Yeah. How about pronouns? What should people do about pronouns? Everybody seems to get really worked up about pronouns. (laughs) It seems to be something that's uh, become controversial in a kind of unnecessary way. Like we use pronouns all the time. We've always used pronouns. Cisgender straight people use pronouns. You know, almost everybody has pronouns. I've met some people who prefer not to use them, but most people have a pronoun that they use and uh, it doesn't have to be as big a deal as Mm -hmm. everybody thinks it is you know so let's say here's actually a really common question let's say um that i've got a student that i'm supporting and um they're using a pronoun i've never heard of or 
it makes or like it's a brand new one and I'm not comfortable with it, what should I do? Practice is always helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can practice, it, it makes a big difference for that person. I think in general, people are pretty understanding when someone's learning. You know, there's this idea that um, people using different pronouns are going to be really angry and upset about it all the time. And that's not my experience for the most part. People can tell when someone's trying. You know, there's a difference between trying and, and slipping up and someone who's like actively not trying or trying to get it wrong. Um, so yeah, practicing, working on it. If you make a mistake, you know, apologize and correct yourself and move forward. Uh, it doesn't need to be a big deal or a big scene about it, um, but just recognizing that you have a lot of power in that situation to really affirm someone's identity and um, that's something we all can be doing. You know, for that little bit of work that it takes, it can go a long way for that person. Yeah, that makes me also wonder, um, hopefully we've got some some folks who work at YRDSB listening, maybe some parents and family members and caregivers. Can you share a little bit of information about the impact of using the right name and pronouns and what that means for someone's mental health? Yeah, it's a hard thing to describe if you haven't experienced, you know, being misgendered. You might think, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It was just a word, you know. But when that word kind of denies your very being and uh, it says that I don't see you for who you are, that's a pretty powerful word. You know, just that one word can say so much in how someone sees you or recognizes you in the world. And, um, you know, on the other side of that, it can do that in a really positive way. It can really say to somebody, I do see you, I hear you, I recognize you for who you are as a human being. And all that can be done with just a little word. So why can't we be doing that more, you know? Yeah, I think most people have probably had an experience where someone kind of consistently got their name wrong. <laughs> like maybe it's like a receptionist at your new job or something and they still haven't gotten to know you and it feels weird and it like makes you just feel off. Um, and it also like when that's happened to me has given me the message that like this person doesn't have the time to get to know me or care mm. about me. So I think that's a really important one. So I know a lot of parents really have a hard time when they've got a kiddo in their in their family who is asking to use a different name and pronoun. And, you know, as a parent myself, I it would be difficult that, you know, I've known my, if I've known my child for like their whole life and now they're asking me to do something different, I think um, it would take some time to adjust to that. But I, I think it really makes a giant impact as a parent to show your kid that you are trying something different, that you are, are listening to them. That's a huge message that kids need to hear, that their their parents are listening and care and are trying, um, even if they don't totally get it and even if they don't totally agree with it. Um, just they're showing that like, hey, you took the time to, to tell me something about yourself and I'm gonna make myself a little bit uncomfortable so that you can feel comfortable. Yeah, it goes a long way in building that trust and relationship, right? Like we work with a lot of teenagers and I often have parents or caregivers coming to me and saying like, how do I get my kid to talk to me? I want them to open up to me. I want them to talk to me. These little things go such a long way in building that relationship, right? If you do these things like using your kid's pronouns or trying the new name, um, that's really saying to them like, I hear you, I'm listening, I'm open. And those little gestures are what help them feel comfortable to open up to you, right? Um, so again, these are little things, but they show effort and they show that we're hearing someone. Um, the other thing with pronouns is, again, I bring it back to this fact that this isn't just the trans community. 
we all have pronouns and use pronouns and you know someone might think oh it wouldn't be a big deal if someone messed up my pronouns but if someone messed up your pronouns all the time several times a day it would probably be pretty invalidating and you know we all want that validation people think it's just the trans community oh people are so sensitive they need all this validation I think just as human beings, we need validation in different ways, right? This is one way that's coming through for the trans community, but it's also something that the cis community generally just has. But if they were missing it, they'd probably want it too. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of these terms, labels, pronouns. Um, I think it's important to talk about the ways different parts of our identities intersect and create our unique experiences in the world. Because even though we might have one thing in common, there's probably other parts of us that might be different and make our experiences different. So, Misty, do you want to talk a little bit about the term intersectionality and what that means? Yeah, um, and hopefully people have heard that term and it's not a new one, but intersectionality was... Um, coined by um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a scholar. And um, it's about having multiple different identities and not being able to pull them apart because they just kind of make up who you are. Um, And so, I mean, I think about this kind of on a regular basis about different identities that I hold and how I can't, um, you know, (laughs) they just make up me and who I am. You can't leave part at home. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think it's really important um, to talk about when we're talking about uh, 2SLGBTQ folks because there is a kind of an assumption out there that that's an identity that's only held by white people. And it's completely not right. Uh, There's 2SLGBTQI folks in every single culture and community around the world. We can find examples of people all throughout history, all over the world. Um, And, you know, one that's really important to me is to think about how when we're looking at some of the modern organizing of 2SLGBTQ and queer folks, um, especially in North North America, it was really black queer folks who were at the front lines pushing things like, so a lot of um, folks know the story of the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York City. Um, The people who were there who were really like challenging um, people who were not allowing them to take up space and and, um, uh, police, Uh, violence against people. It was really, it was black trans women, actually, who were some of the folks that were um, really at the front. Um, And some of them were drag queens, some of them um, were um, lesbians and things like that. So just, it was specifically folks who were just um, racialized on the on the front lines, really taking up some space and um, making a really big impact. There is a history, a historical power of white queer folks when we look at queer organizing, uh, um, when it's been a little bit more like, you know, building organizations and nonprofits and things like that. Um, and that has sometimes really erased some of the efforts of um, black, indigenous, and, and people of color folks who are also queer. And, you know, when we look at that history around the world that I was mentioning, Oftentimes, what has erased people's knowledge of that history or has shifted um, cultures and communities to not be supportive of queer folks, it's often the impact of colonization, specifically Christianity and Christian supremacy, kind of stepping into a culture, trying to take over and trying to um, set their ways upon the world. Um, Especially when we look at two-spirit folks, that's part of what that history was, was making, trying to uh, get rid of 
um, those different um, expressions of gender identity and things like that. Yeah, because you know these diverse, um, expansive uh, ideas and uh, identities have existed for so long. It's not new, um, and it made people uncomfortable if it was new to them. So they tried to get rid of it. Yeah. And as someone who actually identifies as Christian, I think it's really important to take a look at that and to challenge also the idea that um, it's not okay to be Christian and queer and those kinds of things too. Um, so it's, it's just kind of interesting how different messages get, are getting embedded into our cultures and communities and identities. Um, and it's just, you know, when we look at it a little bit critically and we can find some um, other interesting histories and, and messages in that. Yeah, it, it's especially hard to see people who hold these different identities um, experiencing mistreatment and violence when, like you said, they were the ones at the front of these uh, rights movements right from the very beginning. And now we see, for example, like uh, trans women of color being people who are continuously targeted and uh, harmed. And, you know, statistics will prove and back that up that it's happening. And I mean, we don't need stats to see it's happening. We hear people's stories. We see it happening. Um, but we really need to be standing up for these communities in ways that they stood up for us. And they started a lot of this right from the very beginning. Yeah, and I think that history is so important. It's actually really, really healing for people to learn about and important for everyone to know. So I, that's one thing I would really love to see our board expand on is is teaching more of these histories um, in our classrooms. Uh, you know, sometimes I've used that as a therapeutic tool for the students that I'm supporting, and it's been really important and validating for them to see themselves in history. Yeah, well, and when we're talking about intersectionality and, you know, holding multiple identities, it's important to name something that I'm seeing a lot of in the media and in politics and just in you know our world in general right now, and that's this kind of divisive strategy of separating marginalized communities and you know creating this appearance of competition between communities. You know that like we need to compete for resources and supports, and um, you know only one community can have access to equality at a time. You know oh uh, we it has to be either Black Lives Matter or the queer rights movement and. Why? Why does it have to be one or the other? You know, and people hold both of those identities. So, you know, we can't separate out those people. And um, we need to recognize that these are tactics being used against us. And we can't be fighting against each other as communities. It's the same systems that are oppressing all of these communities. So we need to join together and be fighting back against that. I think about the, uh, there's this this moment, this quote in The Hunger Games that I always think about, and it's, they, uh, I think it's Katniss looks up and says, you know, remember who the real enemy is. Mm -hmm. And that sticks with me so much. And like the enemy are not these other marginalized communities. We shouldn't be fighting against each other. Um, we need to be thinking about uh, what we really need to be addressing and how we can, you know, all actually gain that equality because it helps everybody. Yeah, I think it's really important to make sure that our, um, our spaces that are too SLGBTQ are, are anti-racist, are challenging other kinds of oppressions um, and things like that. And um, so that's, that's our, what our work can do. It can be all embedded and connected. So Max, I'm wondering if you have any common misconceptions or myths or common questions that you're hearing in your work that people who are listening to this might have in their brains too. Yeah, I love talking about this because I think like misinformation is one of the tools used against our communities, right? When we hear some of the things that people don't like about 2SLGBTQI plus people or are afraid of, 
they're not actually true things. They're these kind of stories or narratives that have been made up and, and fueled by the media and everything. And um, they're, not, they're not real. We don't need to be as worried about them as we seem to be. Um, so one of the things I hear a lot about is visibility, right? We're seeing more and more characters in TV shows and movies and books um, who identify as part of the community and um, you know more than we've ever seen before. Although it's still not more than there are statistically in our world. You know, when you think about like how many movies exist, think how many movies you've probably seen in your entire life. Um, how many characters have been in each of those movies that you've ever seen. How many of those characters were openly queer? You know, probably still only a handful compared to the vast number of characters you've experienced. But for people who are part of that community, seeing those characters in something shows possibility, right? Like when you've never seen someone who looks anything like you represented, it's hard to imagine yourself out in the world. Um, it's also important to see this like positively represented. Sometimes when queer people have been included in media before, it's been like as the punchline of a joke or as some sort of um, victim of uh, hate and things like that. So it's nice to see people from our community being highlighted in positive ways, being seen for their accomplishments, or even just being like kind of normal generic characters. That's almost like one of my favorites actually, when you see someone who's like, in a movie and they just happen to be gay, but that's not the point and that's yeah. not the like story. The story isn't about them being gay. They're just there and they happen to be because that's like real life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really love that that's at the level of representation that we are now. It's now it's not just stories about those identities. It's just people living their lives and that's just part of who they are. Yeah. And it shows like that it doesn't have to be a big deal, right? It shows, oh, other characters in the movie are just like fine with it because it's fine and we can be like that too. I know a lot of people have questions and concerns about this representation, making people question identities that maybe they don't hold or becoming confused or social media's involvement in people coming out. What do you think about that, Max? I think like anything, a movie, a social media, it's not gonna make somebody something that they're not. You know, I think about my own identity and my own upbringing and I never saw a trans person in anything my entire life. You know, I think um, maybe once represented badly as the punchline of a joke in something. So I only had exposure to cisgender characters and representation. I still turned out trans and you know, that didn't change me into something I wasn't. Um, so I don't think it's possible for it to make somebody something they're not. Even if someone explores a different identity that's also not harmful, mm -hmm. you know? It's okay to explore or to learn about different types of people in the world. Like, diversity exists. We don't need to be hiding from it. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of conversations and questions I'm seeing right now about the age appropriateness of talking about these identities. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, again, there's like contradictions, right? Because when we're talking about what's age appropriate, well, the norm, the social norm, is always age appropriate. You know, I see like little kids wearing t-shirts that say like ladies man on them or mm -hmm. like people asking kindergartners about their girlfriends and boyfriends. But the second it has to do with like somebody being gay or something, suddenly it's not age appropriate. Like why is it age appropriate for a little girl to play dress up but not for a little boy? Like what part of that? So it just doesn't make a lot of sense when we think about it. I think a lot of it is actually 
adults being uncomfortable having the conversations mm -hmm. so they don't want their kids to hear about it or learn about it because it means they might come home and want to have a conversation so we need to be ready and open to have these conversations because again like this diversity exists and what are we saying to that kid who might be questioning their own identity or exploring something different and we're telling them oh that's not appropriate we don't want to talk about that that's not okay or what are we saying to the kid who goes home to their two moms that you can't talk about your family at school. Yeah. Your family's not appropriate. That's a really, really important point. Um, or for, for families that have a trans person in it who's maybe a parent or another extended family member, people need to know that it's okay to bring their whole selves, their whole families into the space, and that makes a really big impact on them. So I'm also um, guessing a lot of people are wondering about like, okay, but like, why are we seeing so many more people identify as trans or non-binary or queer or lesbian, bisexual or gay? Like what is going on here that we're seeing these numbers in larger amounts than maybe in the past? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the immediate misconception is that there's more or that some of these people are not actually queer, yeah. right? And I don't think that's really the case. I go back to this interesting like statistic and graph I've seen about left-handedness and make this interesting comparison because left-handedness, of course, used to be punished and people were shamed and, and told that they couldn't be left-handed. And as soon as we stopped doing that as a culture, we saw an extreme rise in uptake in left-handed people. And that doesn't mean that suddenly there were more left-handed people. It just means that they didn't have to hide and repress that part of themselves anymore. And then it eventually reached a point where it kind of plateaued and we see the stats that we see now. And there's kind of a similar thing happening with um, queer identities. You know, for a long time, people didn't feel safe or able to be who they were. Maybe they didn't even have the words or language to be who they were. And now that they can, we're, yeah, we're seeing more of it, right? We're seeing more people feel safe and able to be who they are. I think those people have always existed. Uh, they just maybe weren't able to. I've talked to lots of um, people in older generations who say like, yeah, if it had been safe to be able to be out and open about this when I was younger, I probably would have too. So they've always been here. People have just been stuck, you know, maybe closeted or not understanding themselves. Uh, so we're creating a culture where people can be more open about who they are, even at younger ages too, which, you know, is great, really, because it just saves people years of confusion or unhappiness when they're able to be themselves earlier. Yeah. It also makes me think back to that history um, that I was talking about before. You know, we lost a lot of people in our community during um, the HIV and AIDS crisis. Um, and also, actually, I was just talking to a youth about this recently. Not a lot of people know that um, there was actually a really amazing uh, institute of sexology that was um, formed by Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany. Um, it started in 1919 mm -hmm. and did a lot of gender affirming work, including um, uh, just supporting trans folks to live their lives. Um, also, sometimes uh, they were some of the earliest gender affirming surgeries. Um, but in 1933, uh, uh, the Nazis actually burned that entire library of data and history and stories. And I wonder just how much we lost just even in that one event of just better understanding trans folks in Europe, um, just in one situation. And also, you know, I was mentioning before with um, colonization, there's this really beautiful story that I heard that I, I love from China, where there was an emperor who 
had um, a man that he was in love with. And there's a story about how they were taking a nap together one day or they were sleeping in the same bed. And his partner was just sleeping so like adorably and lovely. Um, and um, instead of, uh, he was like lying on his arm. And instead of waking him up so that he could get up from bed, he actually like cut off the sleeve of his shirt so that he didn't like disturb his partner. Um, so just like stories like that sometimes that have just been lost um, and history that I think is really important. Yeah, you know, we, again, we've always been here. There's always been people who hold these identities. Um, and it's interesting because we've always been here and not really caused problems, you know? <laughs> it's not something to be afraid of. We're not out there doing anything. And yet all of a sudden it's being framed in this way like, Suddenly we've appeared and suddenly we're problematic. Yeah, yeah. Right? Of course, which we know is not true. So I think it is really important, though, to create a space where parents and caregivers get to ask really hard questions and be able to talk about the fears that they have. Um, I think that's a really important thing for, for parents to be able to have because, um, you know, we'll be honest, like, the world right now is not incredibly, like, 100% safe for queer people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of parents are just worried about their kids being happy and healthy and living good lives. Um, I was wondering, Mac, if you could talk a little bit more about a really common um, fear that parents, uh, especially of trans kids, have of what if my kid, what if I support them um, to socially transition, to medically transition, if that's right for them, um, and they are someday regret that? Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is a really common fear, right? Even the most supportive people worry about the future and worry about uh, their kid and what they'll need. And um, reality is we can never be 100% about anything in life. So that's something that we do have to kind of, I don't know, let go of in a way that, you know, we're never going to be 100%. Nothing's ever going to be 100%. But when it comes to knowing who we are, you know, how sure are you of who you are? How do you know that? Why can't we extend that same level of understanding or um, acknowledge that other people might have that same level of understanding? Something that I've realized in working with uh, kids from these communities for a long time is that people don't continue doing something that is hard if it is not truly them. Mm -hmm. You know, like we said, being trans in the world right now is not easy. There's this misconception that, you know, you transition and become like, I don't know, popular or something, that it's like social clout to be trans in schools right now. And it's not. No. Like, it's really not. It's not um, something that people do to fit in or to be cool or to get attention, especially not as it starts to get hard because, you know, it is hard and people do um, challenge or mistreat trans people. So if someone's continuing to pursue an identity despite those things, it's probably pretty real for them. Yeah. You know, a lot of trans people talk about how they actually don't want this kind of attention, a lot of it's negative attention, and they don't want to have to go through this. But the challenges of being trans and transitioning are nothing compared to the challenges of living a lie. Yeah. Right? Living as someone you're not is far more challenging than um, pursuing who you actually are. When we're talking about like medical transition and things, there's also so many misconceptions around that. Like nobody is 
coming out as trans and walking into a doctor's office and starting hormones the next day, you know? In fact, there's actually so many barriers to these things that are making it really difficult for people to get the care that they need. So people are definitely not just throwing this stuff around uh, like it's no big deal. It takes years sometimes for people to access gender-affirming surgeries, and that's under the care of medical professionals, uh, mental health professionals, you know, people understanding all the risks and benefits and like really making informed decisions. And then when they do have that, all of our latest research, some of the biggest studies that have been done on trans people are showing that actually about 99% of people don't have any regret from medical transition, things like surgeries. Like 99%, that's, that would be considered miraculous in any other kind of healthcare. Just as like comparison, people who get knee replacements have anywhere between like six and 30% regret. So we're talking 1% regret. Like, that's huge. Yeah. Right? But that 1% is being used to deny a ton of people what they really need. Yeah. And when we're talking about medical transition, we're talking about folks who are of an older age, um, who are, are um, you know, not like small children. Like we're talking no. about teenagers um, at the earliest, right? Um, for, for some of the things that are irreversible. So I think that's also a big misconception as well. For sure. Kids aren't having surgeries. You know, kids, when we're talking about transition for kids, we're talking about like, maybe they want a haircut, maybe they want different clothes or to be called a different name. And that's feels really good for them. And they're exploring that, you know, Um, that doesn't harm anyone. And if they do change their mind, or they do want to explore something different, that's okay, too. You know, if a parent affirms a kid who's exploring something, and then that kid wants to explore something else, they're going to feel more comfortable talking to their parent now because they know that whoever they are is going to be loved and supported because they have that proof. You know, when you're thinking or when you're saying that about um, the impact that families have, it makes me think about some really important data that I was thinking about sharing. Um, Because, you know, parents' um, support of their kids is actually one of the largest indicators of mental health and wellness for, for queer youth. So um, there's some really amazing data that's um, from the Family Acceptance Project. Uh, Caitlin Ryan did this data in California, but um, it it shows the impact of of parent acceptance. So um, when kids who are queer come from families that are um, highly rejecting of their identity, um, we find that they're more than eight times as likely to have attempted suicide and nearly six times as likely to report high levels of depression, and more than three times as likely to use illegal drugs, um, and more than three times as likely to be at high risk for HIV and sexually transmitted diseases. So when I'm talking to families about um, the best thing they can do for their kid is I, I often ask them, like, what do you, what's your goal for your kid ultimately? And usually they say they want someone, a kid who's gonna grow up and be happy and healthy. Um, And so if that's the direction you want to go, we want to start looking at ways that you can show support um, and ways that you can show that um, uh, you love your child no matter what. And I think it's okay, as I was mentioning a little bit before, it's okay if you're not totally on board with these identities, if you still have a lot of questions, if you're really concerned, but if you can just start to shift your behaviors and show um, your child that you're on the path with them and that you're working with them, um, that would be that, that is going to get you towards that that ultimate goal of um, that child feeling happy and healthy and having good mental health. 
Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. It's all about what you show, right? You don't have to be an expert on something in order to show or communicate that you're supportive and you're there. We just, you know, sometimes people will say like, oh yeah, like I, of course I'm, I love my kid no matter what, but the kid will say, well, like, but yeah, then why aren't you even trying to listen to me or hear me? Yeah. Right. So we want to make sure our actions are lining up with those words. How are we showing them? How are we communicating to them that, yeah, I actually am here no matter what. And I've got some examples that is um, from this study uh, that I can throw out there. So, you know, allowing your, your child to talk about their identity, expressing affection for them when, um, they're, um, when they share their identity with you, um, advocating for them if they're being mistreated or experiencing bullying, requiring that your family members are showing respect to them, allowing them to engage in organizations or events related to being queer, um, connecting with uh, them with an adult role model to show them options for the future, um, allowing their, their friends who might be also queer come into your house, supporting their gender expression, and believing that they can have a happy future as an adult who is also 2SLGBTQI. Yeah, so those are things that everybody can really be doing, right? And um, like you said, makes such a huge difference for youth when they're uh, going through these things. Just like anything else, they want parent caregiver support and they want you there. You know, Max, you also shared a really important statistic that I'd like to throw out for our listeners right now, Mm -hmm. um, which is that we actually, from our school climate survey, found out that um, more than 11% of our, the students in YRDSB identify as a part of the 2SLGBTQI plus community. Um, that might be larger than people were expecting. Yeah, and those are just the people that we know about right now or who felt comfortable to identify that on a survey, right? Like my guess is that there's probably even more. Yeah. So, and from those numbers, from that you know 11%, something else that stuck out for me from some of these um, studies that we've done even within our board is that when our students were asked about their emotional well-being, who asked about if they'd experienced you know ongoing sadness or depression, about 24% of our students who identified as girls said that they'd experienced that. About 16% of our students who identify as boys 62% of students who identify as transgender report experiencing sadness and depression. Like that discrepancy is huge, right? Mm-hmm. So what can we be doing? How do we look at this and use this data? This is our students trying to tell us something, right? Mm-hmm. How do we use this to make our schools more inclusive for everybody? Making it more inclusive for trans students doesn't make it less inclusive for cisgender students. Yeah. Any work we do towards equality and equity benefits everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I think a big part of um, helping people feel um, less amount of sadness and depression is a feeling of belongingness at school. So um, the, uh, the um, cl- school climate survey also showed us that around sexual orientation, um, 46% of queer students um, in elementary schools didn't feel like they belong compared to 25% of heterosexual students. And, and uh, in high schools, 45% of queer students didn't feel as if they belong compared to 30% of heterosexual students. Um, we also have data that shows that queer students aren't necessarily feeling as safe at school. Um, and we have um, statistics around feeling like whether they've got an adult who cares about them at school. And uh, across the board, our queer students don't feel as safe, as welcome um, in both our elementary and our high schools. So yeah, what can we be doing about this? Right, This is a 
definitely something we need to be looking at and addressing. We've got this pretty large population of students who are experiencing some negative stuff, and I can only imagine that they're not really able to be present and learn in our schools if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel like they belong. It's got to be pretty difficult to be there and do what they need to do. Yeah. I always, um, you know, oftentimes with the students I work with, I, I go back to, okay, what can you control in your life right now? So our, our um, folks who work for the school board, what they can control, my focus for you is how can we make at least one safe space for a kid um, to feel like they can just be who they are? So hopefully we can at least make school a safe space for them. And the biggest thing I think I would tell people to kind of walk away with is really making the effort, first of all, with names and pronouns and making sure that people are being able to be who they are. Um, That's going to improve their learning. It's going to improve their sense of belongingness. So if you just want one thing to work on, it's create a space where you're inviting people to share names and pronouns. You're sharing your name and pronoun, and you're working on getting those names and pronouns correct when you're talking with and about those students. Another thing that we can all kind of be doing is just stepping in or saying something when we hear these negative things happening. Mm-hmm. If you hear misinformation, if you hear a slur, you know, stepping in and saying something, even if it's not perfect, even if you don't know exactly what to say, saying something, it doesn't go unnoticed. I still remember, you know, being in grade nine actually, and my grade nine music teacher stopping a class to have a discussion about language when he heard someone use a homophobic slur. Mm. And nobody in my class that I knew of was openly to SLGBTQI plus at that time, but a few people did come out later on. And, you know, I know for myself even, I knew I would be safe in that classroom with that teacher because he did that. Because he took that one moment when we were in grade nine to say, hey, that's not going to be cool in here. Yeah. And for our parents who are listening, we want to think about, you know, making sure that home is is at least that safe um, and supportive place. So actually, one thing that I found is really interesting, and if you've gotten this far in the podcast, thanks for staying with us, is actually that parents don't usually want to listen to you or I, Max. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we do have really important information, but parents oftentimes want to listen to other parents. Um, because they're, as we were saying, you've got questions, you have concerns, you want to make sure that the kid that you love more than anything in the world is happy and healthy. So there are some really amazing resources for you to get connected to other parents. And actually our next podcast episode um, is, uh, or actually a future podcast episode is going to have some parent voice. We're going to bring in some parents who have some experiences. um, So, and we'll talk more in our next podcast episode about some resources that you can get connected to other parents who have gone through the same kind of thing. Maybe they're a little further down the road. Maybe they're where you are. Maybe they're a little earlier on and you can share some of your experiences too. Yeah, getting connected is great. Just like we want youth to be connected with other people they can relate to, it's important for parents and caregivers to get connected as well. Um, Something that we've mentioned a few times or talked about is like creating these safe spaces or safer spaces for our youth, right? And sometimes when I say that, um, people are quick to say, well, the world's not safe. We need to protect, we need to get people ready for the world, right? We can't be sheltering people and coddling them. And my response to that is like, yeah, the world isn't safe. Why, why can't we create a space that is, right? Why do we have to make everything so harsh? Um, People need an escape from the harshness of the world sometimes. So if we can create that little pocket of safety, why aren't we doing that? And as you're saying that, I, I feel like I have to acknowledge, and this will date the podcast in some way, but 
it's it's 2023 when we're um, recording this, and there is currently in the U.S. a ton, a ton of anti-2SLGBTQ+, um, plus, especially anti-trans bills that are um, going on in the U.S., um, and um, really harmful narratives, people not uh, being incredibly unsupportive of drag as an art form, and children being able to go to children like kid appropriate drag shows and um, drag story times and things like that it's a really tough time right now and that's actually something i check in regularly with the youth that i'm supporting are are you watching the news are you hearing this and just because we're in canada doesn't mean that people aren't also kind of watching what's going on and and also um, perpetuating those really um, harmful and scary narratives yeah it is scary right and it's scary to look out at that and say oh, that's me that they're talking about. They are afraid of me. Um, That is a scary thing to think about. Um, Oftentimes our identities are reduced to or thought of only as sexual or inappropriate when that's only such a small part of what queerness is. You know, for someone, their gender identity is just part of their day-to-day. It doesn't make them a threat. It doesn't make them dangerous. So having that framed in that way... um, it doesn't feel good. And, you know, when we're thinking about the impact on mental health, um, um, when and we're thinking about um, queer youth being able to take up space or just being able to be who they are, one of um, my favorite things that I, I usually like to ask youth is um, thinking about where they're going to see themselves in the future. And, you know, with these bills, um, sometimes they're trying to erase Um, queer youth from being able to have the kind of future that they're going to be able to be happy and healthy. But um, I oftentimes will say, okay, let's look in a perfect world. Let's like fast forward you into the future about five years. Where are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? What are you going to enjoy doing? How are you going to take up space in the world? Um, And what's that going to look like? And also the the person who you will be in five years, what kind of messages does that person have for you right now? Mm. Um, and that usually is going to help people get through the day. Sometimes for the kids I work with, that's the only thing getting them through the day, but at least they'll have that. Um, so um, I, I, it really makes me sad to think about the way that those bills are, are challenging people being able to see themselves in the future. Yeah, the connections to, um, you know, like you said, mental health and also like physical and medical health care, too. Um, I know we talked a bit earlier about people worried about regret and, um, you know, the the detransition and the fears and things like that. And, you know, we talked about how those rates are actually not how they're portrayed. But I just want to point out as well that there's risk to everything. And we talk a lot about the risk of transitioning and the risk of doing these things as if not transitioning carries no risk. But that's not a neutral option, right? For someone who's saying, this is what I need for my life, this is what I need for my future, um, there is risk to not doing it as well. There's risk to someone developing in ways that don't make sense for them when they're actively saying, this is what I need. So a lot of this really comes back to like listening and learning and being open to hearing someone talking about who they are and what they need for themselves. We don't give kids enough credit mm-hmm. to, you know, know who they are and know who they can be. Like you said, talking to these kids about their future and what they want and who they are, like so many people have such a clear idea of that and that becomes even more clear when they're able to be who they are. The amount of youth I've seen who like actually can't picture a future for themselves 
until they're able to come out and be themselves. And suddenly they have this expansive, like huge plan for who they are and what they're going to be. And that's really amazing to see. So we need to be creating space for that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a book that I really love called to survive, to survive on These Shores. That's pictures of trans elders that I love to show youth because they oftentimes don't even think about themselves at 30, never mind like at 50, 60, 70, 80, which is the folks who are in this book, they have pictures of them. Um, so that's really important. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering, Max, can mm -hmm. you tell us um, as a kind of wrap up as we're starting to end our time together, um, some important takeaway messages for what families can do. I think the most important things are really just to listen, to validate someone's feelings, you know, to let them explore. Ignoring or denying or discouraging doesn't make something go away, it just makes somebody feel bad about it. And we don't wanna make people feel bad about who they are. The world's already doing that. You know, we need to be the ones creating that positive space, that healthy space where people can feel loved and affirmed. And you don't need to be an expert to do that. So if we can just, you know, listen again, listen, validate. I can't say listen enough times. I probably <laughs> just keep saying it. But it is like the most important part is like truly listening to what a kid is saying. And even if you don't totally understand it or agree with it, like just hearing that is so powerful, right? Um, getting support for yourself as well make space for your own feelings, your own worries, like those are totally valid too. We don't want to be putting them back on the kid to have to handle. They've got enough going on, but you want to get support around that as well. So maybe that looks like talking to other parents or caregivers. Maybe it looks like working with a therapist or counselor or joining a support group or an online community. Um, there's lots of things out there that can really help with your own experience and journey on this. Um, and then, you know, finding examples of positive, happy queer adults as well um, can be helpful not only for your kid, but for you as well. You know, I know, as Missy said, most people are just concerned and they want their kid to be happy and healthy and um, seeing that possible, finding examples of that possibility can be really inspiring in this journey as well. I did a little teaser that we've got some other episodes because there's too much to fit into this one episode. Can you talk through what's going to come in the future of the feed for TuneIn DSB? Yeah, so we're really excited about a couple other episodes we're putting together. One, we will feature some community resources and talk about some things um, that we're actually doing within the board to try and make our schools um, safer, more supportive places for our 2SLGBTQI plus students, as well as what's available in the community to support families with these things. And as Missy mentioned as well, we will be doing an episode where we interview and talk to some parents and caregivers who've been on this journey. and get to hear from them some of the difficult things but also some of the real like joy and excitement as well like it doesn't have to all be bad you know mm -hmm. find those moments to celebrate and to enjoy things together so i'm really looking forward to hearing some of that from um, these actual parents and caregivers as well so that's what we've got coming up um, yeah we appreciate everybody being with us and sticking with us through this discussion obviously this is just a starting point there's so much to talk about here and so many points we could continue to uh, discuss and learn from you know I know Missy and I are not the be-all and end-all experts of any of this so we appreciate any learning we can do as well um, and we yeah appreciate everyone being here with us thanks for listening thank you for joining us for tune in YRDSB Please join us next time to continue the conversation.